Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 17 of the Elevate podcast. The podcast is out to document and elevate the human experience through conscious conversation. I'm your host, Hayden Humphrey, and I'm incredibly excited to be sharing with you my conversation with Andy Swindler. Andy is a widely certified coach, consultant, uh, and a leader from love. His Chicago-based practice, Lead From Love, empowers conscious leaders and inclusive organizations to shift the dominant narrative from fear to love through an embodied expression of purpose and values. He began his entrepreneurial journey at age 24, which led to his creating a boutique digital marketing and software development company that he exited in 2016. Andy's journey of studying human interaction and shepherding human flourishing now culminates in Feel Real, which he has incubated and evolved since 2007. Andy believes that everyone is capable of deep love and conscious connection, and he envisions a world that embraces healthy tensions to nurture dignity and agency for every person. In this episode, Andy and I dive deep into the importance of leading from a place of love, confronting our privilege and bias as straight white men, and why belonging is the most base desire we have. As always, thanks so much for being here. It means a lot you've decided to spend your time with us, and I'm incredibly excited to share this episode with you. Andy, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So excited to have you here. Although I must confess, I am a little bit sad that um, we weren't able to do this in person. Uh, me as well. And obviously, so many of us are adjusting. And I'm grateful for, frankly, not having to adjust nearly as much as a lot of people out there. Yeah. Um, how's it been for you? How's your week been? How's it been going? Uh, it's going really well. Um, I had actually worked 14 days in a row up until Saturday, which is not really a culture I've ever wow. celebrated and mm -hmm. is not sustainable. And yet, uh, as well, I'm sure we'll get into, it was necessary and actually extremely purposeful for me to do that. Uh, and, and, and it's starting to bear some very real fruit. So Sunday, uh, I had given, <laughs> given myself this day, this magical day to, I had a couple of uh, virtual, I had a virtual brunch with a friend, virtual nice. dinner with a friend. And I went out actually into the forest preserve and just wandered around and saw a deer and it's like, Oh yeah, I really have not been getting outside enough. So that was a nice reminder. Mm, that's a great Sunday. It's uh, it's so interesting. I've noticed uh, something somewhat similar. You know, now that the weekends, I you know, really can't do much uh, in terms of going out. I've realized that I have been working a bit more on the weekends, but I'm also okay with it because I feel like. I feel very energized and I feel like the things that I'm working towards are, yeah, what exactly what you said, very purposeful and very needed right now. So in some senses, it's almost like a hibernation of sorts, um, like an incubation of sorts. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I'm cool with working more. Um, cause I feel like a lot of the work that you do and you know, the work that I do is really, really needed right now. So I'm excited to, to meet you. Totally. Um, well, cool. Well, I um, gave folks a little bit of an intro to you and you know some of the stuff that you're up to uh, before the show started, but I'd love to hear directly from you. Like, what are you up to? Well, I am up to pivoting my startup feel real, I would say back to its original mission. Uh, so 12 and a half years ago, I had a vision in a dream uh, that basically amounted to, gee, I think maybe we're doing the internet all wrong. Uh, I shouldn't say all wrong, but largely wrong. I was actually very excited about social media at the time. I owned a digital agency and I thought, ah, this, 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 the power of this technology to democratize the way we interact and put more voices into the world and all of those wonderful things. And um, I've been somewhat disappointed where a lot of social media has gone. But the core idea in this dream that came to me was, or, or I really want to say was given to me, uh, given my belief system and the purpose work that I do, uh, it was organizing the internet into small, intimate dialogue circles uh, where people could really share vulnerable stories. Mm -hmm. And I think that is the key to building community and rebuilding the social fabric uh, that has really, many would say, has degraded. Uh, and, and the research around loneliness and isolation speaks for itself. If you, you don't have to look too far to really see where we were going. And so feel real. Um, after all that time, I had 
what it really did was it put me on a journey to meet the people who were working on this. And there are many. Uh, and a lot of what we're doing now, I'd say, is building kind of a a town square for a lot of the gatherers to meet and a lot of what we call space holders. Mm -hmm. And the people who really are in the, in the business and have the gift and the art of holding space for other people. And in order to create these containers for vulnerable sharing, and they are, I think still not common enough. Um, I dream of a world where we all have uh, energy and, and capacity to hold space for each other. And I think that that's what a world of love looks like to me. Mm. So last summer, uh, we, we officially, you know, incorporated as a benefit corporation in Illinois. So I'm, I'm very involved with conscious capitalism. So we're using all kinds of very cutting edge, um, uh, new paradigm business concepts and whatnot. We could go into nice. if that's important. And then, and then we essentially went into this research phase uh, where we interviewed 50 people, 20 different companies. We were focusing a lot on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we were kind of drifting away from this marketplace idea because it just didn't seem like the demand was there. And it was like, well, how are we going to you know, really convince people that they uh, need meaningful online experiences and, mm. and that this would be a way to not only come together, but actually practice some of the, and build the relational capacity uh, that we can actually bring out into the physical world. And so, you know, nobody could have possibly predicted what's going on right now. Uh, <laughs> and, and here we are with, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people uh, are, you know, possibly looking for exactly what we were building. So in the last two weeks, we pivoted back to that original marketplace idea that explains the 14 day workload uh, to build up some of that infrastructure and do a massive outreach to our space holder network, which has been humbling in terms of the response that we've received. Mm. Um, and we now have, if you go to feelreal.net, we now have a, a calendar and a marketplace with hundreds of gatherings and it's growing every day. Oh man, that's awesome. And I think it's so, 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 so important. I think that was, you know, when I, when, when you and I first got connected, I think that was one of the things that, um, I felt really connected to you on was the holding space, creating spaces for people to be able to come together and have those more vulnerable, open, authentic conversations. Um, I uh, started an event series here in Chicago last year. Um, and you know, what I noticed in terms of feedback was people are so hungry for those kinds of opportunities, like the opportunity to be able to show up to a space and share openly and vulnerably and authentically and talk about the things that they're struggling with. With and you know, talk about the things that um, might be a bit more difficult for them. And I think now, especially with everything you know being so disrupted and you know folks being isolated and now having to you know potentially confront and come to terms with some fears or feelings or insecurities that they'd been running away from, you know, those kinds of spaces are are more important than ever. Absolutely, you know, and, and I think a question we have and also an opportunity. Um, is to connect these spaces to a more mainstream audience. Um, you know, most people, I've been casually kind of just going around asking people if they know what circling is. And most people mm. don't. I didn't invent circling. I'm actually, there are many people in our network far more gifted at it than I am. And, you know, depending on which methodology you look at, I mean, this has been around for, you know, 20, 30 years or more. And, Many would argue that really it's an ancient methodology. This is if you look at indigenous wisdom and sitting around campfires. I mean, this is really where a lot of human community and interaction really began. And so I think we like to think of it as like merging, you know, ancient uh, wisdom with modern technology. Mm, that's awesome. The uh, pieces that you shared, you know, around the work that you're up to in purpose work and creating these spaces and like really driving forward this uh, agenda of leading with love and leading with compassion. Um, and this might be a bit of a, a, a larger question, but like, where did that start for you? Yeah. So I, I've been an entrepreneur most of my career and I somewhat fell into the idea of web design and, and that grew into my digital agency. And at one point, you know, I had a, a team of uh, you know, 13 full-time people, which for me was a lot of mouths to feed. So that's really where I learned a lot about leadership and about just, just that kind of growth. And um, we did a lot of really beautiful things and you know, we built software platforms and we had social media programs and uh, all, all kinds of, you know, we had a think and drink. So we, we had a sense of community where people would come in every, once a month and we'd do a program. And so I think, I think it was always there in a way um, but really, think towards the end of that, things got extraordinarily hard. Uh, we mm -hmm. grew too fast. We weren't focused enough, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, and I, it took an extraordinary toll on me emotionally, financially. Uh, it really took a few years to recover from, from that. And I think that's where I learned a lot about what I, what I was putting out there or what I was giving. And, you know, for me, the definition I use of, for love is, is absolute appreciation. And, mm-hmm. and was, I'll actually borrow a, a, a quote from Prentice Hemphill, who says that um, boundaries are where I can love you and me simultaneously. Mm, I love that. And I, and I think at that time, I wasn't very good about boundaries. And so I sort of felt like I was you know, giving a lot and sort of putting a lot out there. And it was really just, just draining me and taking a lot from me. And uh, so that's where I really learned a lot about boundaries and, and leadership. That's also where I met Conscious Capitalism. Chicago happens to be the oldest chapter of Conscious Capitalism. And I'm on the leadership team now. And so I started meeting all of these practitioners who were doing really beautiful things with conscious leadership and how do you, how do you really build a, a, a company that in a conscious way? And, you know, for those of us who are kind of pushing that edge, it's, it's like, it's, it's a challenge because it's still not how most of the world works and how most of capitalism right. works. So, you know, how do you kind of, you know, or, or if you look at equity and justice, same kind of thing, right? It's like anybody who's, you know, really trying to build equitable systems in a, in a, framework. I mean, America itself is an inequitable framework, you know, built on uh, slavery and, and, mm-hmm. and we're still living in that legacy in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a big passion of mine as well. Um, it's just, mm-hmm. it's really just looking at my own, you know, privilege and, and then trying to bring other people into that dialogue. So I think all of that, maybe all of those are ingredients in this big soup that, you know, led me to when I was able to, you know, sell the agency at the end, uh, I went all in with purpose work and consciousness work. And so I've done a ton of training in that space. I've been a purpose coach for three years and, you know, and, and I have also um, done purpose work for companies at the company scale, because that's where you can have a, a much bigger impact if a company has clear purpose and values and culture and all that. Mm. Um, and it's trickier than ever, I think, because there is certainly a lot of purpose washing, we say, where companies are, uh, you know, they have their values kind of written on the wall, but it's like, are they walking the talk? And right. um, it's just, that's always, that's always going to happen. So I think the last three years has been, you know, so much of that work has been a big part of my healing because uh, pretty much any, any training or anything I go through, like I, I'm really going through the process too. <laughs> yeah. And so it's really just, everything's opened up, I think in the last probably like six months or a year. Um, and that just, coincided with finally really saying, you know, that now's the time for feel real. Um, so I don't know, it's funny. I don't know what the future holds for me in terms of purpose coaching and consulting. I love the work. It's, mm-hmm. I, it's, it's quite a blessing to have, sort of have to choose between maybe, um, you know, two day jobs that, that are really fulfilling and purposeful. Yeah. Um, but I also in the position that I am and to the extent that we keep growing, uh, I think I can bring all of those skills and everything I've learned in leadership to the team itself and to the, and how we are building our culture. Yeah, that's awesome. It's uh, you know, it's so funny in that piece around you doing the work and learning more about yourself. I think that's a huge reason why uh, coaches coach and therapists do therapy and, you know, people who are in the healing and service industries um, and in, you know, support professions get involved is, you know, partly to make an impact and partly to learn more about themselves. I have found that it's the exact same thing <laughs> with me, you know, getting to learn more about myself and every, you know, every person that I work with and, um, you know, everything that I do. And I, I love the pieces that you were sharing around, uh, you know, what's, what sounds like shifting the paradigm in which uh, companies operate. I, uh, I was having a conversation with a woman by the name of Maria Ross um, she, uh, on a, for another podcast episode. And she just wrote a book called um, The Empathy Edge. And it basically was about how uh, companies can um, basically use empathy as a competitive advantage. Um, you know, and, the, you know, at the same time, it, it infiltrates the culture, it infiltrates the purpose of the company, the mission, the vision, um, and just makes organizations a more pleasant and human, you know, place to work. And it's so interesting because I think in so many senses, it is... It, it seems counter to the prevailing paradigm of what works, quote unquote, in terms of, you know, making money or running, you know, a capitalist organization. So, I, you know, I'd be curious, you know, when you go out and you have conversations with people who maybe hadn't heard of conscious capitalism before or who aren't, you know, um, very 
well-versed in, you know, these kinds of topics and concepts, like how do you start to talk to them uh, in a way that has them realize, you know, the benefit and power of, you know, leading from love, focusing on purpose um, and, and bringing more awareness and consciousness into their leadership? Yeah, great question. It's, you know, some of us feel like, you know, there's, there's, if there's a sort of 20% uh, by now who are trying to focus on this in some way. Um, and that's, that's an important thing. You know, I think the whole idea of consciousness is, is I think this um, commitment to a lifelong learning journey mm-hmm. and, and growing, right. And rather than the idea of a fixed destination or, or a binary, um, like, you know, and I think that's, that's, what governs a lot of the world right now is this this false sense of you know like that there's that we actually have this clarity of black and white and mm-hmm. um, and so you know it's it is tricky obviously there's you know um, revenue is important and that's one of the reasons I I did gravitate towards conscious capitalism and one of the reasons Feel Real is a benefit corporation uh, because I believe. If there's if there's sort of two sides, you know, a lot of people sort of think, well, all nonprofits are doing good and all good in the world, and all businesses are kind of doing all bad in the world or evil. Hmm. Um, I think really more realistically, there's like a line in the middle, and at the end, as as businesses kind of lean towards that middle line on the one hand, and nonprofits on the other, um, the reality is these end up just looking like legal structures. Because there are businesses who are truly, truly doing a heck of a lot of good in the world, and probably the best way to find them is to go go look go look up B Corps. Um, and then you know there are nonprofits who you know there's a lot of nonprofits that aren't aren't effective, aren't well run, you know, and hmm. and really just aren't uh, actually living up to their mission. Or there's are actually duplicative. There's like ten or twenty that have the same mission, and they're like kind of falsely mm-hmm. competing with each other. Mm-hmm. So the whole like nonprofit philanthropy space, I'm not against it by any stretch. I'm on I'm on a couple boards, um, but I don't. I think it's a massive like oversight to say, oh, that's just they're all good, and putting my money in there is all all good all the time. So I think that the 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 more we all lean towards that middle line, whatever our legal structure is, whatever our revenue structure is, uh, that that's that that's what's uh, critically important. Yeah, I love that. Um, creating the gray, playing in the gray, <laughs> uh, versus living in the black and white. And uh, you know, I think it's so interesting because it is you know somewhat counterintuitive, or it can seem like a counterintuitive conversation. And, and at the same time, like being able to go in and work with an organization to uh, you know bring in these concepts of consciousness and more aware leadership. Um, even if it's not that, even if that's not how you talk about it necessarily, because I, you know, I can imagine, and you know, you and I, you and I have had conversations before about, um, you know, companies that you've worked with who just get it, especially, you know, when you bring the idea of, or the concept of love into the equation, um, and like going in and, and working with organizations around leading from, from love. Um, and there's just so much, I, I feel like there's so much opportunity, uh, in, creating those sorts of awarenesses within organizations and realizing that, you know, they don't have to be one in the same with results. Like you can still be an empathetic, conscious, love oriented company and create results at the same time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one of the leaders in conscious capitalism, Raj Sisodia, I like the way he puts it, you know, it's like, you know, money profit is like red blood cells. You know, we wouldn't say any human being's purpose is to like produce red blood cells, but we need them. And, hmm. and so you know, it's, it's a helpful framework to rest on to say, yeah, it's important, but it's not the main attraction. And if we, cause we focus on profit and money too much as most of capitalism still does, then people start to look like numbers. And that's mm-hmm. to your point, yeah, empathy. That's when we lose empathy. That's when we lose compassion. And it's really easy. I mean, it's even easy, even in a small business, the minute that you're looking at payroll and <laughs> just trying to make sense of everything. And it's like, okay, they're all numbers. Right. Uh, it, it's sort of, I don't know, it's funny now, like the world has moved really uh, in a wonderful way in terms of being appified. And, you know, we use uh, Gusto for our payroll and it's like just really amazing how many things have been automated uh, that weren't that way, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And so I'm, mm-hmm. it's really kind of delightful. Um, but I didn't, yeah, I didn't, the, the thought I was bringing up earlier, let me finish that. So it was 20, if I, if something like 20% kind of get it to your point, mm-hmm. um, then maybe there's sort of 60 percent ish in the middle that, that are really the, um, the ones that, you know, in some way are maybe already doing this. It's really fascinating, especially, I want to say, especially in the Midwest, a lot of companies are kind of 
just trying to do the right thing and, and really trying to do right by their people. Uh, and then, and then, so they, a lot of them find conscious capitalism and they're like, Oh, Oh, I think I've been doing this, but I didn't know what it was <laughs> called. You know? um, and then there's 20% or so these are, you know, I'm kind of making these numbers up, but I do believe in the power law and 80, 20. So the, and then there's this 20% or so uh, that, you know, probably won't shift until we hit a tipping point and then they'll just mm. sort of have to shift. You know, they're mm. the ones who, you know, aren't worth really talking to right now, aren't worth going for because they're mm. just so immersed in, in the current paradigm. And yeah, I mean, the way I think about it is shifting the dominant narrative from fear to love because of, mm. those are all fear-based motivations of scarcity. I love that. I, um, you're, I'm, you probably, I would assume are familiar with conversations with God, the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I love the, uh, one of the concepts he brings up about the, you know, there's only two f- real emotions or two core emotions and it's fear and love. And it's been interesting, you know, starting to look at the world through that lens. Cause I start to realize very quickly, which actions are taken from a place of fear and, um, which actions are taken from a place of love. And, uh, I think sometimes it can be easy to fall into the trap of doing things from fear because it seems like it's the win in the short term. And, uh, you know, it's like love's a long-term game. It's like a lot, you know, it can be a long-term investment. Um, and you know, it's always the thing that's going to work out, even if it doesn't work out the way that you, that you think that it's going to, um, like continuing to put your focus and take action from that place is the thing that will always result in, you know, the, the, experience that you're looking to create or the results that you're looking to create for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I haven't gone too deep into that work, but it's very similar to the way that, that I do purpose work. Um, the methodology I primarily use is, is called true purpose. Mm. My job as a coach is never to tell somebody their purpose. It's actually to connect them with what we call a trusted source. And that's a really beautiful, inclusive term, which means whatever you believe, what you can mm-hmm. believe in God or a spirit or your soul or an angel or uh, really anything that you believe is an energy source that knows your purpose and, mm-hmm. and you can dialogue with to learn about your purpose. So as a coach, I'm really helping people connect with that and then helping them kind of decipher what they get from it. Um, and, and I, yeah, I really believe everybody actually has that connection or that capability and yeah. most of us have absolutely i didn't for most of my life have absolutely no training <laughs> or access to it yeah i don't think organized religion has has brought a lot of that to the world in many cases mm-hmm. either mm-hmm. yeah it's um <laughs> i yeah I, lo- I love that point i uh, i think that there's so much to be said for tapping into that internal intuition that internal presence you know whatever it might be um and what I've found in following that is I start to be able to separate more concisely the stories that I've been taught or conditioned into believing and like what I, what actually feels good. And Absolutely. you know, the thing that feels good is you is, is always the thing that leads me to, you know, to get closer to what I actually want. Um, and so, you know, I'd actually be really curious for you when it comes to intuition, when it comes to um, listening to that, you know, internal source or whatever it might be, like, how does that show up for you? And, and how have you, you know, gone about practicing getting, you know, more in touch with that piece? For me personally? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, let's see. So it's kind of a funny thing, right? Because I mentioned this dream, you know, and the thing about trusted sources is they're, they're with us whether we know it or not. And it's, it really, I think, just becomes a question of learning to, to connect, um, which at first, you know, feels, uh, uh, there are a number of exercises we use. One is actually extremely simple. It's called Active Imagination Journaling. And uh, it was created by Carl Jung, you know, I don't know, 100 years ago or something. And you basically <laughs> just write, you write a screenplay with your trusted source. And so you write nice. your name, and then you write a question, and then you write trusted source, and you write the answer. And it, the psyche has this extraordinary ability. We're really tapping in, into the imaginal realm, the imaginative the imaginative capacity of the psyche to to manifest these conversations um and it's 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 just it's never not worked for me or or Mm. any any of my clients or anybody i've ever worked with that there is some kind of connection by the way you can use the exact same process to talk to any part of the psyche so you can talk to your inner critic or you can talk to any any Mm. number of what we call parts you know i've actually met and documented more than 100 parts in my psyche nice um which is just 
a fascinating way to, to deconstruct sort of, like you said, the patterned conditioning that we all are in, we're all swimming in, we all grow up in, our family systems, our schools, society at large. I mean, we're all in this, in this soup. And, and it's not a matter of making it wrong. It's just a question of saying, trying to figure out why we reacted to things the way we did yeah. and, and why the, the, we created strategies to move through the world in the way that we do. And a lot of those strategies are, are our greatest gifts. And, and I think that's a, that might be one point of divergence from some other kind of consciousness work out there. You know, in the community I'm in, we really celebrate the ego mm. because um, now we don't celebrate an, an overreach of ego, you know, it's a, it's a balance, but, but yeah. if you can balance this idea of trusted source or intuition with ego, uh, it can be really, really powerful. Um, I think Elizabeth Gilbert actually said it well. She said, you know, the ego makes a wonderful servant and not a great master. Mm. Um, and it, I think just, even that's a little hi too hierarchical for my taste <laughs> perhaps, but this idea of partnership, uh, is really, where we want to land because we actually by this definition of ego which is really just the the part of us that interfaces with the material world we're in well we need that we need that to do things we need that to be with people we need that to build relationships and to construct things and to mm -hmm. you know all all of these things so mm -hmm. um you know really finding a way to reconcile our our relationship with the ego and that's really hard if you don't have any direct dialogue because for most people you know, I'd say the inner protector is probably the most dominant because that's the mm -hmm. primary function of the ego is to keep us alive. And then the second would, in almost all cases, is the inner critic. And, the, and in that case, it's like, well, we develop, we sort of develop this capacity to criticize ourselves so that we can preempt any external criticism mm. in order to avoid getting, getting kicked out of the tribe, which is really in addition to maybe just the fear of the unknown, so getting kicked out of the tribe is the... <clears throat> base universal fear of mankind because yeah historically anciently if we got kicked out of the tribe we would die mm, i that's so interesting the the thing that i hear in you know what you shared one is being able to articulate what's happening like actually putting a name to it you know dialoguing with it like just generating the awareness around what's happening or you know what the different parts are um and then learning to love on those pieces and uh you know it's been interesting you know in my own work as a coach that's a big part of you know what i do with clients and what i do with my coach is being able to understand where my self defense strategy or my self sabotage strategy comes up and you know over time learning to love it and appreciate it and not judge it because I think the judgment is the thing that adds a, a whole layer of anxiety and shame and guilt versus like hey this is a thing that happens and it's totally natural and normal and I don't need to you know disallow or you know disavow this part of myself it's you know it's just part of the larger game um, and totally agree with you on on the piece around getting kicked out of the tribe it's a huge reason you know, that I, I'm doing the work that I'm doing and I'm sure that you're doing the work that you're doing, like being able to provide, provide people a space to show up and belong, um, I think is so comforting and allows for so much more exploration and creativity and connection and community. Absolutely. And I realized I drifted off from your main question, which was about my relationship with my trusted source or intuition. Um, and, you know, one way we think about it too is like, and I think as you just said, you know, why you know, and there's so many different ways to look at this in different language and different methodologies. But generally, yeah, why do we look at resistance, right? Why do we look at that as an important thing? And it's like, well, because that has the capacity to keep us from our purpose, because mm. purpose and this relationship with trusted source can be terrifying to the ego. It can look like an extraordinary threat because it's like, whoa, that's big and that's scary and I don't understand it. And, you know, because these are big, big energies we're, we're dealing with here that are calling us and, you know, calling us into something bigger and into growth and into the unknown. And, and so it really is helpful to, you know, yeah, like literally negotiate with the ego to say, hey, what do you need? What do you need to feel good about this? And, and, and I love what you said because I'm right there with you. It is like pouring love, you know, just taking a bucket of love and just pouring it on all the parts. And, and our, you know, and our, and our inner children is the best way to do it. Um, so my relationship with my trusted source, I actually have four trusted sources now, um, and three of them are animals, which was completely unexpected, which is actually mm -hmm. a really good sign. If your trusted source appears as something you don't expect, that means your nice. ego probably didn't invent it. Um, and 
you know, it's funny. One of them is actually a red cardinal. And I, I, in my office, I have this tree outside my window. And every once in a while, a red cardinal will appear. And I just feel nice. like oh, that's, that's like my, you know, one of my <laughs> spirit animals, basically. That's awesome. Um, and I, when I first did, so on the one hand, <laughs> I was saying like, well, our trusted sources are always with us, whether we know it or not. And, you know, some like ancestors is a, a, another common reference point, you know, for mm. trusted sources. And so for me, when I first did my purpose coach training um, about three years ago, I, wow, I just, I just went so deep into this. I think I have a hundred pages of journaling or something or more with my trusted source. Nice. It was just so rich and so deep. And it, there was so much, I should actually go back and look at that. And, and I developed a weekly practice, you know, so one of the most important mm -hmm. things really I'd say with anything in life, right, is practice. Mm -hmm. So the idea of actually formally sitting down every week to journal and to dialogue directly with my trusted source really helped to build the muscle. And I've actually had an experiment in the last several months, maybe even close to a year now, where I've been, okay, what if I, what if I, you know, kind of take the training wheels off? What if I, you know, just sense into my trusted source in yeah. every moment and, and try to get to more of a flow state with it rather than this, um, you know, just, just doing the, the formal dialogues. And it's not right or wrong. There's nothing wrong with the dialogues. And sometimes I still, if I have a big decision to make, I will still go into dialogue because there's just this crystal clarity that comes out. It's mm -hmm. just a really, I don't know, it's uncanny. Mm -hmm. um, and yet I would say in the last two weeks in this, total flow state where I, I don't even, I've never worked that hard in my life. And, and yet it, yes, it was taxing, but I really never stepped over the threshold. And I credit a lot of that with this relationship with trusted sources. That's awesome. It's, um, it's like getting to the place, oh man, I'm totally going to butcher <laughs> this concept, but there's this concept, um, of, uh, like inaction, like, active inaction in a sense. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and it's not necessarily not doing anything. It's just more like what's the step forward or what's the action to take where there's the least amount of resistance. And so it just feels like you're just getting pulled along towards something. Um, which is uh, like kind of what I, what I hear in uh, what you're sharing. And I love the piece that you shared around practice, um, like getting to the place where, you being able to pick up on what your intuition is telling you is ju it just becomes secondhand. Like it's almost like unconscious mastery. And so that anytime that you're out in conversation or, you know, talking with a potential client or organizations or whatever it might be, it just becomes the de facto place that you make decisions from. Um, and just thinking about the impact that, you know, that can have on, you know, your, you know, day-to-day -day life, the organizations that you're supporting, the things that you're building. Um, that's so exciting. Yeah, and there's a really beautiful way to bring this kind of intuition or if you choose, call it a spiritual practice, into businesses. And this is one of the biggest things that, that's missing in dominant capitalism or extractive capitalism uh, because there's a, a hyper-focus on what we could call divine masculine energy, um, which in excess uh, becomes toxic energy. And mm -hmm. that's true on either end. I mean, excess, excess of joy and feminine also becomes toxic, but we live in a world that's focused, especially in the West, very much on, on the masculine. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of intuition and bring, bringing more emergent energy in, the term trusted source becomes extraordinarily powerful in business because then people sitting in a meeting can literally say, and I've trained clients to do this, uh, to say, oh, my trusted source is telling me this. So in, a, in most business environments, unless you happen to be in a church, uh, if you said, well, God is telling me uh, yeah. to, do, to do this in a meeting, it probably <laughs> wouldn't necessarily always go over that well. But if, if people normalize some kind of neutral language, like, hey, I'm getting this hit from trusted source, or I think intuition is maybe, I like to think of it as neutral, but I think even that term to some people is out there. Mm. Uh, which is really just a sign of how, uh, how, how divorced we are from the, the, the divine feminine, I think. Yeah. Um, so that, I don't know, it's, it's just, I've been in, in some meetings like this with the senior executives, you know, one of my clients is a manufacturing company, and it's just, it just completely shifts the energy in the room when people are tapping into that versus the like hard driving, like we got to get this done, 
you know, dominant energy that, 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 um, really drives a lot of companies. Yeah, totally agreed. It's, um, I, I, uh, love the fact that you make that distinction because I think that, that, that is so incredibly important. One, being able to articulate the, you know, the difference between the two, um, and being able to recognize where it comes up. Um, you know, I've done, I've been doing a lot of my own work around, you know, my own masculinity and my relationship to my masculinity and, um, you know, realizing the ways that I can continue to lean further into it and also realizing the ways that, you know, I bring more feminine energy into my life and looking at the difference and balance, uh, and, and parallels between the two. Um, and how much more powerful it is to understand that both are always present and, you know, in a balance, uh, you know, that's where you, that's where I think the most magic happens in a sense. Um, the piece that you shared a little bit earlier too, that, that I wanted to touch on was, uh, you know, your, your consciousness or your awareness, awareness of your own, uh, whiteness in a sense, or like your own privilege. Um, cause this is something that I, more recently have been looking at doing some work around, um, cause you know, I've been very privileged in my life where I grew up the, you know, the, the household that I grew up in the neighborhood that I grew up in. Um, and so I'm now starting to take a look at like, how does that affect and impact my ability to connect with people and how does that get in the way of relationships and how does that, you know, potentially color the language that I use and how I talk about things and, um, how can I, you know, create a, a way of communicating that has the largest impact possible. But so much of that is getting clear on my own bias and, you know, my own um, sense of privilege in that sense. So I'd be curious for you, like, how have you gone about that, uh, that process and like, how do you, practice, you know, getting responsible for those things? Yeah, great question. I, it's been a journey. Um, I think it's, I think I've like kind of woken up in stages. Um, I know, you know, I grew up in the eighties and that was a time when I think we were taught to be colorblind. You know, there's this idea of like, hey, you know, Cosby's on TV and, and sort of civil rights was a couple of decades ago. And, you know, it's like, yeah, there's still some problems and whatnot, but, you know, mostly that's kind of, you know, history or it'll just naturally kind of get better. Um, I mean, uh, you know, Martin Luther King is a, is a hero and yet he was, he's largely whitewashed. You know, we kind of mm -hmm. selectively pick the parts of his, you know, career and quotes in life that we, that we, you know, are, are palatable <laughs> to, to mm -hmm. white audiences. Uh, you know, so fast forward, um, you know, I remember reading a letter from a Birmingham jail in college and just getting into it. And I just, I guess maybe it was, maybe it was more of an intu intuitive sense for a lot of my life. It's like, something's off here. Something's not right. And like you, yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much hit every branch on the privilege tree, you know, coming down. Mm -hmm. So, um, which, you know, to me, in addition to being straight, white, male, cisgendered, uh, and all that is is actually growing up in a, in a loving, stable, you know, household that valued education and art and all of that. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I, I view as some of the some of the greatest privileges, and so that's a lot of what drives me in my work is is this sense of love, like the sense of wow, you know, what would a world look like if if everybody had access to that? Um, right. And so, about I think like a lot of people, like something really shifted. Ferguson seemed to be a moment that shifted a lot of things and mm -hmm. the emergence of Black Lives Matter. And it was, it just became harder for those of us in the privileged fishbowl. It just became harder to ignore all of a sudden. Now, for some of us, I mean, obviously lots of people are still completely actively and aggressively um, pushing against it or ignoring it. Mm. Um, so I, I don't know, like the last five or six years, I have, I have just been on this journey. I've taken a couple of formal trainings. I'm actually just, I just started another one. I mean, one of the, the most important thing I would say in terms of allyship, uh, you know, to me, there's two really important capacities. You know, one is this commitment to lifelong learning like this mm -hmm. for those of us. I mean, this is true probably of anybody more abstractly, but certainly for those of us with a lot of white privilege, it's like we, you know, if I have been spent 40 35 years of my life, you know, not really focused on that, then how many decades will it take to really unravel that? I just, the easy answer for me is just, well, I'm just going to commit to this for my life because I right. don't know, um, <laughs> which is kind of true of, you know, most consciousness stuff anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other one is, is, is formal 
training and, and education and you know it doesn't have to always be a class but certainly um i think the best book if somebody really wants to go into the deep end i would say the best book uh, that i like is an indigenous people's history of the united states because mm -hmm. you really can't understand privilege and racism and systemic injustice in america without looking at colonization without understanding truly how this country came to be which is not what i what i was learned what i learned in school what i was taught uh, and so that's a good place to start. If you have the opportunity to take a physical journey, I would say go to uh, Montgomery, Alabama, go to the lynching memorial. Uh, it, is, it is a shocking experience in a, in a, in a good way. Uh, and it mm. bring, brings you in. I had the opportunity to go there last October. Um, the class I'm taking right now is actually David Camp, uh, Dr. David Camp, who, who wrote the White Ally Toolkit. Uh, and he's, it's kind of, I think we're the first cohort to go through this um, class. There's another one I took a year ago called the Whiteness Intensive. Um, I've gotten involved here with, you may know, um, Michelle Bess and, and the Brave Space. And I got to know her because I spoke at uh, for, for Women in Diversity Forward, which is organized by Michael Donnelly. And so I just, I think like, it can, be, it can seem really intimidating to step into the space, right? And I just rattled off a bunch of stuff, right? <laughs> um, but I think you just have to start somewhere, you know? It's, mm -hmm. And it's, I, I've, I've compiled this spreadsheet. It's absolutely massive of the DEI, the diversity, equity, and inclusion resources that I've found. Nice. And it's like, and I'm sure that's like, I don't even know. I probably haven't even found a tenth of what's out there. And I certainly haven't even read a tenth of what's on my spreadsheet, you know? So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think letting go of the sense that we have to know it all and we have to be right. And because the reality is, I don't care if you read every book about white privilege and racism, you still wouldn't know what the experience is. And, and this is a really important point. And, and even going back to empathy is like, we'll never fully understand. There's yeah. literally no way to fully understand, I think, what any human being is going through right. ever. And, and I think that's what maybe mutually attracts us to this idea of vulnerable story sharing, because that is a way to get a little closer to the experience. And if mm. we're a little closer to the experience, then it's easier to have compassion for the person. And, but it is important never to step across the line and pretend that we understand the other person. Yeah. Nice. I love that. I, the thing that I hear in that is like intentional practice. The, uh, you know, and that's, it's, it's interesting because it's almost like that's the gray, right? It's like black and white is don't do anything about it or feel like you have to know everything. And the gray is like, Hey, how do we just play in this place of, um, you know, intentionally wanting to learn more, wanting to, you know, un understand more of, you know, somebody else's perspective or experience or what they've been through, um, so that we can create those shared common platforms to have conversations about, you know, the things that impact everybody and how we can become better allies and how we can support, you know, in a, in a more effective way. But, you know, so much of it is just like taking the first step and actually getting out there. Yeah, I was at a, um, a surge showing, showing up for racial justice workshop a few years ago, and it was called uh, Ally as a Verb. And I swear, I was halfway through the workshop when it finally sunk in, <laughs> like what the heck oh. that, that meant. And it was, I use that in all of my, I give allyship workshops now too. And I, and I, I even use the word allyship because unfortunately, sort of like I was talking about purpose washing earlier, there's almost like ally washing where, or, mm -hmm. you know, people just want to grab the identity and be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, a, I'm on board with that um, and not necessarily do the work. Mm -hmm. I think that's really tricky and you know one thing i noticed just being in diversity equity and inclusion spaces and actually a lot of our research in the last six months validated this and it's not i mean that's not hard <laughs> to find evidence of this but the reality is very 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 few uh white men especially straight white men are doing this work mm -hmm. and, and are involved in these dialogues and that's that's shifting and that's changing and there's a couple of really wonderful two or three wonderful organizations that i do know are devoted to that um, but that is, if I had one thing to do with the magic wand, I'd say, you know, yeah. the people with the most privilege and power, which in this country is, is, is straight white men mm. need to get into this discussion. Totally agreed. There's so much opportunity. Uh, I think in that, um, one thing that I wanted to circle around to, you mentioned a couple times the, uh, you know, this idea of vulnerable storytelling, uh, and also this sense of, um, like what we're all looking for deep down, the sense of belonging, the sense of being in the tribe. Um, I'd be curious, like what you see as the relationship between vulnerability and belonging. Mm. 
Oh, I'll do my best to channel my inner Brene Brown here. <laughs> um, hmm. I need to contemplate that one for a minute. Yeah. So, you know, this need for belonging is is just absolutely one of the deepest human needs. I mean, we are social animals. That is like going back to Aristotle. It, you know, it's, it's painfully obvious. Actually, <laughs> I almost edited that and I'm like, no, actually now it's, it is painfully obvious right. uh, in, in the situation we're all in. Um, so this, this sense of belonging, it's, it is so innate. It is so deeply woven into us that we become so terrified of not belonging that I think we, we lose our sense of vulnerability. You know, we start building armor to shield ourselves from the potential of losing that, mm. which actually has, you know, the opposite effect in many cases. And, you know, mm. because we think, well, if we're vulnerable, if somebody sees me, sees the full and true me, then they won't accept me. They won't love me and they won't keep me in this tribe. Mm. And so, but usually the opposite is true. You know, usually, uh, you know, and that's one of the reasons why we're so passionate about Feel Real and organizing all of these dialogue spaces. Um, you know, and one thing that's emerged, you know, the dream, I kind of interpreted that, you know, a decade ago that it was like, well, maybe these would just be kind of like automated chat rooms that would spawn or something like that. Mm. I realized how incredibly powerful it is to have a gifted space holder. It's, you know, somebody who is really building the container with a ton mm -hmm. of intention and love so that people can be vulnerable and can share. And when you're in those spaces, the, the energy of the room completely shifts. It's just phenomenal. And once, you know, somebody kind of generally has to go first, right? But then vulnerability is contagious, right? It's like yeah. once one person goes, it's like, <laughs> oh, oh I, 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 I kind of have permission to, you know, get like real here. Like, like, oh, cool. Like that's what this is about. Great. You know, yeah. so I think we're all craving it. And yet we're in it. Yet most most of us, and I'm not immune to this, are also terrified of it. You know, at the same mm -hmm. time, so it's this this paradox. I think we're 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 trapped in, and I think um, there's a, a DEI consultant Howard Ross that um, you know wrote a book, and it's called Our Search for Belonging, and how our how our need to belong is actually tearing us apart. I'm paraphrasing that slightly, mm. and his premise, which I really I really think is, is spot on. His premise is that you know, because we, you know, need to build these tribes so that we feel like we, we're belonging uh, to each other, then we naturally build a sense of exclusion, uh, which that came up in the in the community dinner the other night, right? Greer Parker mm -hmm. kind of talks about the same thing, where it's like, well, actually, the idea of having a purposeful gathering naturally creates a kind of exclusion. Mm -hmm. So, and I, I, I think that's a, an extremely important and yet provocative concept, you know, for those of us who believe in like radical inclusivity and all of these things. And, and I, think, I think the answer is, you know, not sort of necessarily bringing everybody into one space, but saying, oh, well, we need more capacity. We need more of these right. spaces. You know, we need more, um, you know, and it's funny, even if you look at segregation, I mean, it's like, well, a lot of communities naturally segregate themselves by any number of demographics, one in race may be one of them. But in a systemic, in a system where we have systemic injustice based on the color of skin, uh, that segregation leads to tr tremendous problems for communities and tr mm -hmm. tremendous lack of opportunity and tremendous, you know, the whole school to prison pipeline. So it's, it's sort of funny, you know, when we look at, you know, I don't know, some kind of utopian future where like a lot of these systemic issues are, are gone. I don't know, people may, would probably still organize themselves in sort of affinity groups you know, where there's like likeness and, and maybe, maybe, you know, because we look alike and things like that. So it's like, okay, well, how do we, well, I always come back to dignity and agency. Like that's my guiding light. If, if nice. every single person had dignity and agency, then I really think the world would sort itself out. You know, because every other, anything we try to pile on top of that as like a global view or uh, a, a, a dictation of sort of how the world should operate, I think starts to work against the natural capacity of humans to, to you know, flourish from the inside out. Totally. The, uh, the thing that I love in that too, I have been, I'm in currently in a book club and I'm rereading the book Sapiens. 
um, which for those of you who haven't read it, it's a brief history of Homo sapiens as a species. And I think it's so interesting to look at current uh, social, political, economic issues through the lens of you know, this idea that all of us are animals and we evolved over a very, you know, a uh, long period of time to operate most effectively in a very particular way. Uh, and, you know, socially that was in groups of maybe up to 150 people, like, you know, the amount of people that we could actually maintain close, intimate social relationships with. Um, and, you know, when you start to grow to groups of millions, if not hundreds of millions, it becomes, you know, so much more difficult to uh, create that kind of uh, experience for people on a broad scale. But, you know, what if it wasn't about that? What if it was actually just about increasing the number of spaces that we have, you know, for people to come together in those smaller tribes, so to speak, um, you know, to get that benefit of belonging and vulnerability and those pieces. Absolutely. You know, and, and I think, I mean, to some extent, you know, even, even like Facebook groups have kind of done that, right? You know, mm -hmm. we've gathered people, but one of the challenges is most, most, pieces of technology like that, um, the groups are completely segregated. You know, you're, right. I might be in 10 groups, but they don't, they don't cross pollinate. They don't talk to each other. So, you know, one of the things, um, where <laughs> everything's happening ahead of schedule, it feel real. So, uh, we will, you know, be launching a community platform in the few, in the, in the next few weeks, which thankfully I have a technical partner, uh, that has created a platform that is exactly based on the concept of, okay, we can have these different groups and, we can find ways to cross pollinate them. And I, that is, that is so exciting to me to have the cross pollination uh, happening between the groups. And I think, and I think that's something that's always excited me about technology. Um, you know, and I, look, I, I don't, as much as I'm excited about, you know, these online spaces, I don't think that should ever replace physicality. And mm -hmm. I'm sure in a few months, whenever we get out of this, that, we are all going to be so desperately craving physical contact. I don't know what's going to really happen to our relationship with, with virtual technology. Um, but one thing I say is, you know, we need to, yes, tribalize. That's a natural concept, as you said. And we need to not build walls against love. Mm. It, you know, love is the thing ultimately that will, that allows a tribe to be itself and have autonomy and cross-pollinate and trust uh, the rest of the tribes. Totally. Yeah, I love that. Um, I One thing that I wanted to end on, actually, we talked about it a little bit before we started recording, but um, you, know, you were talking about the changing state of the world with you know, everything that's happening with this pandemic and uh, this sudden confronting now the world has, has had to do with with their own sense of loneliness. Um, and so I'd be curious, like, you know, kind of like where you see the intersection with feel real, with vulnerability, with belonging, it's kind of a big question. Uh, but uh, the intersection of those things with, you know, maybe the loneliness that's been there, but people haven't been necessarily aware of it or haven't directly confronted it yet. Yeah, you know, one of the words that's really been ringing in my ears since a colleague said it this week uh, is that we're building relational capacity. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I'm actually also in a 16-month uh, journey. I've been saying leadership journey, but it's actually a rite of passage. You know, a lot of the work that I've done with my, for myself in the last couple of years, you know, I went, I'm involved with Mankind Project. And a lot of these are really about how do we step into a, a more mature way of being. And, you know, they're really, especially in the West, you know, unless you're maybe connected to a, a religion that does this, there's not really like a rite of passage or, uh, you know, um, an introduction or, or a ceremony that like brings us into adulthood. So there's something kind of missing there. I mean, I mean, a lot of us in Mankind Project would say, well, we're, we're a lot of like adolescents running around in adult bodies. <laughs> and again, like, I don't, like, I've done a lot of work there, but it's like, it's not like I'm done, you know? Um, so I think that's a lot of it is this idea of building this relational capacity and, and being and being with each other and always learning together and having the vulnerability to do that. Uh, and having spaces where we can trust that we can be vulnerable and that people won't weaponize our emotions and all of that, because that certainly happens. And, you know, the hope there is that over time that this actually becomes a place to practice. I mean, one of the metaphors we've been using for several months 
uh, not that publicly, but uh, internally, is that this is an emo- this is an emotional gym, right? Like we know. I mean, I wasn't into sports, so it took me until I was 30 to figure out like, oh, gee, maybe I need to work out because that's why, you know, I'm not in great shape after my 20s. Um, big shocker there. Uh, uh, you know, maybe there's a tiny sh- scrap of people who, who can sort of get away with eating whatever they want. I'm not one of them. So, uh, so in the last, you know, 10, or 11 years, I've looked at that. And so I think, I think we need something similar. I think we need to understand uh, that we, first of all, that we even need to practice our emotional relating with ourselves and with each other, social, social, emotional relating. And then we really need a place to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Like a place to practice it. And, and I think that's a lot of what we're building. And the very act of being vulnerable and sitting in circle with people and going deep together, it, it kind of naturally produces those deeper relationships. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, it is, phenomenal like in certain situations i mean within like 90 minutes i can really feel like i i know a piece of somebody and i and i trust them and like we've gone somewhere together that yeah might not happen in you know 10 years of chatting with somebody on facebook yeah that's awesome well, i feel like in it's so interesting it's like without the vulnerability piece without the willingness to like really open up and show the you know the underpinnings you just kind of get the performative uh version of somebody like you get a uh, like a representative uh, of them versus you know their actual innate being and and who they are authentically and you know that's the thing that we connect to that's the thing that um i think has us realize that we're just talking with someone who in a sense is just a version of us, (laughs) like wanting the exact same things, trying to do the exact same things, struggling with the exact same things. Absolutely. You nailed it. I I just, that, that, I think that's probably the ultimate thing we all discover is like, Mm -hmm. Oh, we're not alone. (laughs) I love that. Well, cool. Well, Andy, where can folks find you online? Yeah. So so we've, I've mentioned feel real a few times. That's feelreal.net spelled as it sounds. F, uh, how do you spell feel? <laughs> F-E-E-L-R-E-A-L.net. And um, my own website is andyswindler.com. And that's where you can learn a bit more about me and my journey and my coaching and consulting. Uh, even though that's taking a, a bit of a side seat to feel real these days. Yeah. Awesome. And what's a piece of wisdom that you have for the folks listening to elevate themselves, their communities in the world? I'm going to keep this one simple. Love now. I like that. I'm like, I want to get that framed, put it up against my <laughs> desk. Um, that's awesome. Thanks for you sharing. Know that. You know what's funny about that you saying that? So I've been getting into embroidery a bit lately. My friend Shannon Downey does these embroidery uh, workshops and she's actually brought them online. So we're featuring her on Feel Real. Go nice. check it out. Um, awesome. And the very first thing I embroidered was just that message, love now. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I love that. <laughs> you have to get a copy of that. Uh, and then finally, um, just want to wrap up with acknowledgement. So Andy, are you open to me acknowledging you? Absolutely. Cool. Yeah, Andy, uh, there's a lot I want to acknowledge you for. Um, I, you know, you're just one of those people that I I think makes people feel very comfortable. Uh, and I think that speaks to the amount of work that you have done in terms of your own healing and the love that you have for other people is just incredibly palpable. So thanks for being such an incredible source of that out in the world. Um, thanks for your leadership not only in, you know, feel real in the organizations that you're up to, but um, thanks for the leadership, you know, that you bring to conscious capitalism, to business, to organizations. I think it's such an incredible opportunity to shift a, what's been a fundamental paradigm in service of people and in service of businesses and in service of the world, just becoming a more loving place. Um, Thanks for, thanks for your humility and your kindness. Um, And, really thanks for being a a man in this work. You know, you mentioned earlier about how the people who need this work most are the ones that are least, (laughs) least likely to do it. Um, Thanks for like leading the charge. Thanks for leading the pack. Um, You know, in terms of getting clear on, you know, your own, you know, biases or false beliefs or um, 
ways that privilege might impact your ability to to actually serve people and support people in in coming home to love. Um, I think you're an incredible force for good out in the world. I'm just incredibly excited to be connected with you. Uh, and thank you so much for coming on the show and just sharing so openly. Um, I know people are going to get a lot from listening to this. Wow. I'm just going to soak that in. Thank you so much. May I, may I acknowledge you? In kind yeah, of- please. I'm going to love fest here. Um, yeah, Hayden, I, I don't even actually remember exactly how we met or I think you found me or something, but I'm so grateful you did. And I've found every single one of our encounters to be just this rich well of, uh, uh, of vulnerability and sharing and openness. And I, you know, um, yeah, it's funny. I know we were so looking forward to doing this in person, but, mm-hmm. you know, there's something about just just the energy and the way we're able to connect that you know, it doesn't feel like there's much of a barrier between us. And I think mm-hmm. that feels like one of your gifts and maybe why you've, you know, chosen this particular format to to bring people together and to bring these gifts and these these uh, voices into the world, which is so mm. incredibly important. So thank you for that. Mm. Thanks, Andy. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this show and want to stay up to date on new episodes or other special offers, I'd invite you to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if there's ever anything I can do to support you, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. See you next time.